Ah, so we have some changes coming to our next season, season three of Morning Murders. Uh, we started this project during the pandemic, and life was a little bit different, as we all know. Yeah, moving forward, we'll be doing our best to release new episodes every Monday. There may be times that we have to let the coffee brew a while longer. So thank you for being a bean Beans. and sticking with us. We are so grateful for all the support and excitement with this little podcast we like to call Morning Murders. And we look forward to sharing more stories and coffee with all of you. Stay safe and enjoy all the cups of coffee. Our episodes contain graphic information that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Would you like some murder with your coffee? Welcome to Morning Murders. I'm Nicole. I'm Amanda. And I'm Brenna, back from the dead. Back from the dead, she's back. I died for a week, but then I came back. So you're like a zombie now? Yeah. Now you you can be like Buffy and say, I may be dead, but I'm still pretty. Ooh, (laughs) nice. Yes, Buffy. Buffy. Well, um, you get to join us now for our part two episode. I know. It's kind of exciting. <laughs> I feel like I'm living every bean's dream of where I listened to an episode, and now I get to sit here and have you guys. <laughs> so I'm living the bean dream. Living the bean dream. Well, happy morning murder Monday, ladies and beans. Here we are again. What better way to spend this Monday than with your favorite mug? We've got some cute mugs today. Some hot coffee and part two of The Killer Clown. Are you ready for this? That means yes, yes, great, great. Okay, but just so that everyone knows, so this part can get pretty intense, so please keep your well-being in mind. If you need to skip this first part and go straight to the trial and conviction, absolutely okay. If you need to skip this one all together, that is also super okay. Sorry, I gotta go. Oh, yes. Sorry, bye, Amanda. Do it. Bye, all right, we'll see you later. Uh, join us next time, our next Monday, which is our Halloween special, which mm-hmm. will be very exciting, where we get to tell uh, some short stories about murders on Halloween. Um, this episode will be here if and when you're ready to hear it, if, you know, this Monday is not the day. Or whatever day you're listening to it is not the day. Okay. Ladies and beans, here come the murders. Though the police had nothing to hold Gacy on, they still decided to follow him. They knew he was involved in the disappearance of Robert Peast, and they were going to find proof. They asked David Cram if they'd ever seen Gacy get angry and lose it. Now, David Cram is one of the people that worked for Gacy. David told them there was this time he was digging in a crawl space, and Gacy had given him very specific instructions on how to dig the hole. But he ended up doing it more on, like, the diagonal versus the straight side, and David said Gacy freaked out and became extremely upset. Gacy was not really phased. He was still the life of the party as time went on. He would even get to the point where he would introduce the cops that followed him into coffee shops and bars and be like, these guys are my friends. Look at these guys. Um, he was really playing like a cat and mouse game with them. It was his idea of like staying controlled. There was even one, I think he like told them that he hired them for his own protection. They're like, yeah, these are my personal <laughs> oh, wow. bodyguards. Wow. He just like was talking all kinds of shit. Um, He also told the cops that he hired people to follow them. So he's like, all right, cops, but just so you know, I've hired people to follow you because you're following me. 
That sounds like something stupid I would say to be like, oh yeah, well, who's, who's following you right now? And then they'd turn around and then you'd just hear me like, yeah. <laughs> slappy feet running away on the tile. Yes. But the cops obviously knew that he was a liar and like they didn't believe him ever. It got to the point where Gacy thought that the investigators were actually his friends. Like he manipulated it so much that even to himself he thought they were all cool and they Listen. were friends. Which does play an important role in the investigation as it gets a little more intense. So the police started to receive calls from people, parents, who mentioned kids that had been missing that used to work for Gacy. The police learned that Michael Rossi and David Cram, the two PDM employees, were also Gacy's assistants. They thought they might have some answers. When they spoke to Rossi, he told them that the high school ring with the JS on it belonged to John Sizik. He had been missing for a while. Cram told the police that Rossi was sold John Sizik's car. Gacy had changed the VIN number. With all these new boys were being reported missing, it was now a much more intense case. Where were all these young boys going? Just runaways or was it something more sinister going on? Unfortunately, we can guess the answer. Six days into the Peast investigation, Gacy's lawyers filed for a suit against the cops for violation of Gacy's civil rights. They were constantly following him, which was affecting his business and his life. They were following a little too closely. I have a lot of respect for defense attorneys now. I used to really dislike them, but as I've gotten older and realized how messed up our system is, I totally understand where they're coming from. I mean, of course, some of them are scumbags, but the ones who are actually doing the job correctly are literally just trying to poke holes and be like, this is what's wrong with your system. You have to prove this. If you can't prove it, my client should go free. That's just, that's the fact. Mm -hmm. They're just truly trying to expose all the errors. When you're about to completely destroy someone's life or take them to the death penalty, you know, you better have solid proof. Yeah, without a reason, without a reasonable reasonable doubt. doubt. Yeah, Yeah, without, no reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. Um, But the defense shouldn't be able to poke these holes, right? Like, the system should be in a place where they can't do that. So Sam got a lot of hate. Sam is the defense lawyer. Sam got a lot of hate for the role he played in the Gacy case, but I totally get it. It's his job to challenge our messed up system. During the trial of Robert Peast, uh, Robert Peast's dad actually came up to Sam and pulled him aside and told him that there was no malice he felt towards him, and he totally understood and respected his job. That is, like, huge. Yeah. And that really stuck with Sam, like, forever. Because that's the son of the final victim telling you, like, hey, man, I have nothing against you. You're doing your job, and I totally get it. And I respect that. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Dang. So eight days into the peace investigation, the cops are told about a missing TV and a radio from John Zizek. They remembered seeing a TV similar to the one described inside Gacy's house. The issue is it's really difficult to get a second warrant for the same place. Right. But because Gacy thought they were all buds now, they asked him if they could go inside his house, and this time he said yes. <laughs> so one cop, Bob Scholes, says he had to use the bathroom. So he proceeded to go to the bathroom but started looking for the TV. He doesn't find it, but he goes into the bathroom anyways and just, like, flushes the toilet just to be like, yeah, I totally use this bathroom. And then the heat kicks on. And as the heat kicks on, the smell ah, happens. I was afraid you were going to say. Oh, and he knew right away there was a dead body. Oh, yeah. So the police also found this slip from a roll of film. So you guys, I don't know if you remember, if you were, like, turned in film to, like, a pharmacy, they yeah. had to, like, rip the slip off and, like, you kept the slip. So yeah. That when you, yeah. So they find a slip of that inside okay. a trash can, but it's from the pharmacy that Rob worked at. And it was in Gacy's house, like in the trash. So it could prove that Robert was in the house. Yeah, that's my point, yeah. 
So on December 11th, 1978, Kim Byers, a co-worker and a friend of Rob's, had borrowed his jacket earlier that day. They were working together, and she was stationed at the front register. And it was really, really cold. Like, it was right where the door would open, and it would, like, hit her. So he lent it to her while he was on shift. At some point, she had taken some film that had been turned in, ripped off the slip, and for some unknown reason, she still doesn't know why she did this, she put that slip in the pocket of Mm. the jacket. The police had it analyzed with the film roll packet from the store, and it was a perfect match. It also had the address and information about the store on the slip. This slip helped place Rob at Gacy's house. Wow. Yeah. With the film slip and the report of the dead body smell, the cops sought out a second search warrant for Gacy's house. Then, about nine days into the Robert Peast investigation, December 12th, Gacy can feel that they're closing in on him. He goes to Sam's office just to talk. He claims that he originally went there to talk about the continued harassment from the cops that were following him and upsetting his workers. But for some reason, he began to confess everything to Sam. It was after Sam got very serious with Gacy about his lying. All Gacy was doing was talking to the cops when he shouldn't and was lying about everything. So Gacy took a breath, Sam poured him a drink, and the rest of the time, Sam was basically in shock as Gacy spilled everything. He had still believed that Gacy was innocent at this point. He was having doubts, but was still pretty sure that Gacy was fine. But now he knew for sure because Gacy told it all himself. Gacy said, I have been the judge, jury, and executioner for many people. Oof. What a nightmare for a lawyer. Am I right, guys? Oh, my God. Yikes. So after his confession, he fell asleep. Oh. Just in the chair of the office. Just asleep. Listen, it's exhausting. <laughs> Took a lot out of Took him. Took a lot out of him. Telling all these horrible things he did Taking to these poor it, boys. It's like, yeah, he just did a whole big, like, word dump, and now he's tired. <laughs> he's tired. So Sam gets up and tells his team not to let Gacy leave, to shoot out his tires, anything. They couldn't let him leave. Sam got on the phone and scheduled an appointment with a psychiatrist for, like, 8 or 9 in the morning. He needed to get on top of this before it was too late. Gacy wakes up and just takes off. Yeah. So Sam was trying to get him in this appointment to be like, you're insane. We can cover this. It's okay. You're insane. But Gacy's like, bye, and like left. So he ends up getting arrested on a marijuana possession charge the next day. Hey. Ten days into the investigation now. Wow. Um, Smoking marijuana while you're being caught, like, followed by cops actively, like, all right. I got some balls on you. (laughs) That clown's got some balls. That got horns on that guy. He just thought they were all friends. Yeah. What do you mean, guys? How sad do you, like, how sad do you think he was when they were like, we want a second warrant for your house? He's like, shouldn't have let you go in to pee. You know, like, (laughs) I wonder if he's like, I let you into my clubhouse. Yeah. You said you'd be cool. We did. We spit on it. Yeah, yeah. Mm. You guys suck. Oh man! <laughs> like that must be so jarring, and also like, g- good. You know. He, oh yeah, no. He sucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, like he does suck. Um. So they do get the second search warrant, and they begin to search the house. They found handcuffs, a two by four with holes drilled in the ends, a syringe, and clothing that was too small for Gacy. There was an investigator in the crawl space examining the area and noticed red worms and began to dig in the area, and he found human bone. Yep. Another investigator recalled what David Cram had said about digging in the crawl space. The police were now starting to realize that the bodies were somewhere buried in this crawl space. And it's crazy because, like, what we say in the first, uh, in part one of this uh, series, uh, they were in that crawl space to begin with and just had no idea. that They were literally on top of the bodies and just didn't know. 
So they joined the officer already digging, and when they found more of this person, they realized he was too decomposed to be Rob. This was another person altogether. They knew this investigation was about to get a lot more heavy. They found so many bodies they couldn't identify that they had to just mark the areas with little, like, flags that had numbers on them to mark all the different spots. All the bodies they uncovered had been there too long, were, were too badly decomposed. Parents and others who had reported missing people began to come to the scene or oh to the God. station and ask if it was their son. No. I know. Like, how heartbreaking. Some parents told investigators that their son was missing and had been an employee of Gacy's. One of the investigators recalled a body that was fragile and kind of stuck, and he had to, like, force his hands into the ribcage to get a better grip to then pull him out of the grave. Stuff like this, like, stayed with these people forever. Like, the investigators never forgot this this horrible uncovering of all these bodies. And they needed to get dental records of the missing people to compare them to the remains that they were uncovering. DNA wasn't a super big thing yet, so they didn't have much to use to identify the remains other than, like, teeth. Right. December 22nd, 1978, the police were getting frustrated with Gacy because they still couldn't find Robert Peast. Gacy told them something cryptic, like, he wasn't above or below ground. And they were basically like, cut the shit, where is he? Gacy told them about a road that just ends at the river, and to leave his body where it is, it's better off there. So the police began to search the river for additional bodies. They also were trying to figure out how many bodies were buried around the house and tried to get him to explain all of that. Gacy got frustrated with them for not listening to him, so he asked for a paper, and he drew out a map of the property and where all the bodies would be. He also told them that he started to run out of space this year and began using the river. He had started getting too cocky and sloppy towards the end, though. And with Rob, he took him with so many witnesses seeing him at the pharmacy. He even had the boy's body in the attic when the police came to his house the first time asking him to come down to the station. So if you remember from the first episode, the police come to his house and like, you need to, can you come down to the station? He's like, oh, I'll come later. Because he had Robert in the attic right upstairs. So murder is so, like, I always say that it's so stupid. It's, like, uh, the dumbest thing because then this is this is what you do now. Like, you got to you gotta just back. take mm-hmm. care of all this shit now mm-hmm. and, like, move these bodies and do this whole thing. Like, this is your hobby now because mm-hmm. you can't. Just let those people alone. I know. Dude, live your best life. Cool. Oh, my God. Yeah, just been a contractor and left everybody alone. Right. And it's also why his car was covered in mud when he arrived at the station at 3 a.m. and why he had, like, mud on him. Because when he had dumped Rob's body at the river, he got stuck on his way back. He even had to get towed out of a pile of mud that his car got stuck in. Like, had to call a tow, like, find a tow truck, get him to pull him out. Insane. But now, let's take a pause. Grab your mugs, ladies and beans. Take a deep inhale of that wonderful coffee smell, that bean water, as you, Brenna, say. And let it out slow. We're going to rewind a bit and talk about the boys the police have begun to uncover and what happened to them. There is not a lot of details on these boys, unfortunately, but I will go through what I have found and then list everyone uncovered at the end so that all the known names are said. 1975, July. Johnny Bakovich went missing. He was 17 years old and loved cars. He even raced his beloved 1968 Dodge, but that was an expensive hobby. To pay for constant part replacements, Johnny took a job doing remodeling work for PDM contractors. Johnny and Gacy got along well and had a good working relationship. Until one day, Gacy refused to pay Johnny a large amount of money for two weeks of work. 
This was a common trend of Gacy's to save money. Oh, the things companies do to save money. Johnny later went to Gacy's house to demand his pay. He worked really hard for it and really deserved that money. He brought two of his friends with him to help support. After some arguing, Johnny realized that it was pointless, and he and his friends left. He dropped his friends off, but then never returned home. His parents urged the police to look into Gacy, but nothing ever became of it. In July 1976, Michael Boninen, 17 years old, goes missing. He loved to work with his hands, specifically in woodworking and carpentry, a multitasker who would be working on several projects at a time. He was in the process of restoring an old jukebox when he went missing. He was on his way to catch a train to meet his stepfather's brother when he never came back. June 1976, William Billy Carroll, 16 years old, goes missing. He was a kid who was always getting himself into some kind of trouble. Went to juvie when he was 9 for stealing a purse. Age 11, he was caught with a gun. When he was 16, he started making money by arranging meetings with teenage boys and adult males for commission. Then, one day in June 1976, he left his home and just disappeared. Gacy was known to cruise streets for young boys, even at bus stops. He would look for runaways or young male sex workers or just boys who were alone. He would get them into his car, which looked like a police cruiser, by way of offering help or implying that he was a police officer. He had this, like, red light that he'd put on his car and it would, like, flash. Um, He also had fake police badges and a black leather jacket that looked like some of the ones the police would wear. Gacy claimed that he never said he was a cop. He just never corrected the boys who said he was. But he also would flash a badge. So, sorry, Gacy, but that's pretty much saying that you're a cop without saying, I'm a cop. He later confessed that he would get a lot for free when he did that. Free sex. And it was much easier to kidnap a kid that way. December 1976. Gregory Godzik, 17 years old, goes missing. He worked at PDM Contractors and loved it. He enjoyed doing whatever odd job Gacy asked of him. He was using his earnings to get parts for his 1966 Pontiac. It was a work in progress, but he loved it. Gregory had dropped off his date on December 12th in his cool but not the prettiest car, and he was on a major high from life. This girl he had a super big crush on, and it had been a while, and he finally got to take her out on a date. So he dropped her off at home, and then he drove home, but he never got there. The police found his car, but not him. Now, this is an audio medium, and Amanda and I don't wear bells, but we <laughs> and so because we're not saying a lot right now, but it's because we're like literally shaking our heads and rolling our eyes and everything about Gacy. Like, we're still here, guys. <laughs> they have not left. They're like gone. I'm yeah. alone. I'm yeah, just alone in the breakfast book now. Yeah, just here. Like, in a. St- in a glass case of emotion. In a glass um, case of emotion. Yeah, it's actually just, rather soft in here because there's a lot of like foam to soundproof. Anyway. But yeah, like because it is an audio <laughs> medium, like we this whole time we've just been like shaking our heads and going, uh-huh. oh my God. And oh my God. And oh my God. Oh, but there's so many more names. There's so many more. So many more names. January 1977. John Sizik, 19 years old, goes missing. He got into his car on January 20th and never came back. His car and high school ring were found later. To recap that, which we said earlier, the car was in possession of Michael Rossi and sold to him by Gacy, who had changed the VIN, and the ring was in Gacy's house. John Sizik never worked for Gacy, but knew some of the victims that had met Gacy before. In September 1977, Robert Gilroy, 18 years old, goes missing. He loved the outdoors. He loved to camp. He loved horses. He was catching a bus to go horseback riding with his friends on September 15th when he just disappeared. 
His father was a Chicago police sergeant and began to search for his son immediately. A full-scale search took place, but his father did not find him. December 11, 1978, Robert Peast, 15 years old, goes missing. Gacy kidnapped him from the pharmacy, took him back to his house, handcuffed him, violated and raped him, tied a rope around his neck with knots in it, which he would then put a stick through the hole and... I have to take a second... which he would then put a stick through a hole the knots made, and he would twist the stick ever so often to tighten the grip of the rope around his neck as he tortured him. He did this with all the boys he abducted. This time, though, the phone rang, and Gacy stopped to go answer it. When he came back, Robert was dead. He put him in the attic as a temporary solution because he ran out of room to bury bodies at his house. To recap what happened to Robert, after the close call with the police at the door, he took Robert's body to the river and dumped it. On his way back, his car got stuck in the mud and he had to get help from a tow truck to get his car out. He went to the police station after that. Now, the police searched and searched and searched for Robert. They found other bodies, but not Robert. It wasn't until April 1979 that Robert's body was surfaced. Chicago had gone through the freeze of 79, snowstorm after snowstorm after snowstorm. It wasn't until the weather finally got warmer that the gases released in Robert's body, allowing him to float to the top and be discovered. Because he took Robert Peast, the truth begins to come to light. This innocent young boy, all of these innocent young boys, suffered such terrible and frightening ends to the lives that they had only just begun to live. I'm going to now read the list of identified victims. This is only 25 of the 33 young boys that police uncovered. Eight were too badly decomposed to ever identify. So we have Timothy McCoy, who was 18, January 1972. John Bakovich, 17 in July 1975, Darnell Sampson, who was 18, April 1976, Randall Raffet, age 17, May 1976, Sam Stampleton, age 14, May 1976, Michael Bonanen, age 17, June 1976, William Carroll, age 16, June 1976, Rick Johnston, age 17, August 1976, Kenneth Parker, age 16, October 1976. Kenneth Parker, age 16, October 1976. Michael Marino, age 14, October 1976. Gregory Godzik, age 17, December 1976. John Sizix, age 19, January 1977. John Prestige, age 20, March 1977. Matthew Bowman, age 19, July 1977. Robert Gilroy, age 18, September 1977. John Mallory, age 19, September 1977. Russell Nelson, age 21, October 1977. Robert Winch, age 16, November 1977. Tommy Bowling, age 20, November 1977. David Talsman, age 19, December 1977. William Kindred, age 19, February 1978. Timothy O'Rourke, age 20, June 1978. Frank Landingen, age 19, November 1978. James Mazzara, age 21, November 1978. Robert Peast, age 15, December 1978. Now, I do apologize if I mispronounced any of these names. I do try my best. Um, Please forgive me. Uh, Not all of Gacy's victims were murdered, and there was one young boy who was able to get out of Gacy's signature move. 
So Gacy had brought him back to the house to show him a magic trick. This was what he did with all the boys. It was how to get them into handcuffs. He would first do the trick on himself, handcuffing himself and struggling a little bit and then getting out and being free rather quickly. He would then put it on the young boy. They would ask how he would get out of it, and he would say, the key. And then he would go on to torture and violate them before killing them by strangulation. One boy did get out of handcuffs and wrestled Gacy to the ground, but this boy thought nothing of it. He and Gacy would wrestle a lot. He just thought Gacy was really teaching him a new trick. Before he left Gacy, Gacy said to him, you're the only one who's been able to get out of those. At the time, the boy didn't think too much of that statement. Later on, though, he realized what Gacy was really saying. Mm. Another survivor was Jeffrey Rignall. He was a young man who Gacy picked up on March 21st, 1978. Gacy offered him some marijuana and then proceeded to take a rag soaked in chloroform and completely covered Jeffrey's face. Gacy took the now unconscious Jeffrey back to his house to torture him. Gacy put him in a two-by-four with holes in the ends where he interlaced a chain. He bound Jeffrey by the wrists and ankles bent him over, and violated him with a large sex toy. He kept him there, torturing him for hours. Jeffrey woke up on some steps near Lincoln Park around 5 or 5.30 in the morning. He was half-dressed in a haze and with his face burned from the chloroform. Jeffrey went to the police to report the rape, and the police did not take it seriously. They They didn't understand that a man could rape another man if they were gay. It was awful. Jeffrey just needed help, but they brushed it off at first. Because remember the time, this is the 70s, man. They didn't take any of that seriously at all. Mm -hmm. Being gay at this time was incredibly difficult. It was widely looked down upon and not understood, which is also why it was really easy for Gacy to find his victims. So many of them were out there trying to be true to who they were, but they just weren't accepted. So they ran away or they got involved in sex work to try to survive, slept at bus stops or on streets. And he would pick up the sex workers and more times than not beat them and not pay them because he decided he didn't like them. Or he conned them by acting like he was a cop for free sex. Police were no help when victims came forward and they came forward. Jeffrey was not the first one. He was just the one who really pushed back. When he realized the police weren't going to help him, he took it upon himself to find Gacy. He had tried to give them a description of Gacy, but had trouble because he was still hazy. He did vaguely remember the car ride after he'd been chloroformed. He did his best to retrace the steps and totally found Gacy. Ah. He reported it to the police, and they did get a warrant and arrested Gacy on charges of battery against Jeffrey. Gacy was actually out on bond when they arrested him for the marijuana charge that ended up getting him caught for everything. The house ended up being completely destroyed, and the city said it would be better to just build him a new home if it came down to it. But it didn't. Gacy was never going to return to that home. The cops found 29 bodies at the house and more around it and then in the river, 33 in total. It took a year to get ready for trial. On February 6, 1980, it began in Chicago. Gacy tried to plead not guilty by reason of insanity, but was rejected. His lawyer, Sam, argued that Gacy did have temporary insanity when he committed the murders. The doctors diagnosed Gacy as a neurotic psychopath with obsessive compulsive disorder. Gacy joked during the trial that he was guilty of running a cemetery without a license. Fucking creep. (sighs) There was a time that the defense said the deaths were all accidental erotic asphyxia deaths. The coroner came back with evidence that made that impossible. Also, 33 accidental erotic asphyxia deaths? Really? 
One, maybe two would be believable, but 33? Mm -mm. That's a lot. That's a lot. 33 is a lot. It's a big number. It's a lot of of people. Um, The confession he gave police was also used in trial. The defense tried to get it thrown out because of Gacy's state of mind, but it was denied. The trial took about four weeks. His mother came in as a character witness. And you can see footage of her in the confession tape series. She's just this really sweet old lady. And she like, you know, just kind of has this crutch. And she's like, er, yeah. And she's like hobbling along. She's just really sweet. But she spoke about his abuse as a child. When doctors spoke about his state of mind, one said, Gacy is like an onion. Because the truth was, Gacy had a lot of layers. A lot of masks he wore around people, including one he literally painted on. The jury took two hours to reach a verdict. John Wayne Gacy was found guilty and sentenced to death. Gacy was executed on May 10th or 9th, 1994, depending on what you read. His execution had some complications. The lethal chemical solidified and clogged in the IV tube. It had to be replaced with a new tube. The execution team had to lower the blinds while everything was fixed, then raised the blinds again to reveal the new tube and continued the injection. The execution took 18 minutes because it's there's an audience always, so like he's in that right. room, right? So they had to lower the blinds so the audience couldn't see them fixing the tube. His final words to his lawyer were, kiss my ass. He showed no remorse. His last meal was a dozen deep-fried shrimp, a bucket of original recipe chicken from KFC, a pound of fresh strawberries, and french fries. His execution did attract a party, similar but not as extreme as Ted Bundy's. People showed up drunk, which prompted a bunch of open container and public intoxication arrests. Vendors sold Gacy t-shirts and other merch. Then everyone cheered when Gacy was pronounced dead. The issue with the IV led to Illinois adapting a different kind of lethal injection method in hopes to not have that error happen ever again. After his execution, his brain was removed. It is in the possession of Dr. Helen Morrison, who interviewed Gacy along with many other serial killers in an attempt to isolate common personality traits of violent sociopaths. It was said, though, that after the brain was examined, there was no abnormalities found. There is a song by Sufjan Stevens. Did I say that right? Sufjan Stevens? Do you guys know who that is? Sufjan! Sufjan. Adam's going to be so mad if I say it wrong. (laughs) Sufjan Stevens called John Wayne Gacy Jr. I think it's Sufjan. Sufjan? Yeah, but that might be me. You could be right. Because, well, my my partner loves him as well, loves that artist as well, and I I say it like an asshole too often to know what the real... Because it's fun. You Look at it. Show Amanda the word. That's how you spell it. Sufjan! Yes. Sufjan. So, yeah. Sufjan Stevens. Yeah. Sufjan Stevens. It may not be that. I think I just say it like a jerk too often to know if it's real or hey, not. Hey, well, I'm keeping this whole thing in, so. Now we know. Now we know. <laughs> We've said it all the ways, so one of them's got to be right. Anyways, it's on his album called uh, Come On the Feel... Come on, feel the illa noise, because he spells it noise. Uh, album. I thought it was really funny. Yeah, but there's the man's <laughs> like, <laughs> I can't with the s at the end. All right. Uh, so I've shared that in the show notes. I highly recommend listening to it. Um, while Gacy was on death row for 14 years, he took up oil painting. He loved to paint clowns. I know, so long, 14 years. Um, his alter eagle. Eagle, his alter eagle, <laughs> his alter ego, Pogo, especially. His paintings included pictures of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Jeffrey Dahmer, and Ed Gein, among other famous serial killers. His paintings were auctioned after his execution. 
19 were put up for sale ranging from $195 to $9,500. Some people bought his paintings just to destroy them. There was a bonfire in June 1994 with 300 people in attendance, including some of the victim's family members, and they all watched 25 of his paintings burn. The National Museum of Crime and Punishment exhibits two of Gacy's paintings, one of which is called Baseball Hall of Fame. It was signed by 46 members of the Baseball Hall of Fame, including Duke Snyder, Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, Mickey Mantle, Ted Williams, Sandy Koufax, Yogi Berra, and Roy Campanella. President Richard Nixon also signed the work. Everyone who signed it did not know that Gacy was the artist. <laughs> yeah, they just didn't know who they didn't know the artist was, and they all signed it. And that, my ladies and beans, is the incredibly awful and heartbreaking story of the thing that haunts many nightmares: the killer clown, John Wayne Gacy. Thank you, Autumn and Carly, for the nightmares. Now, ladies, any final sips? Pause for trauma. Pause for trauma. <laughs> it's all just so horrible. Mm-hmm. No, start us off, Nicole. You want me to go first? Those are always so poignant. Okay. First off, I just ha- so my final sip is this because I always say that my final sip is this. First off, I just have to say that the death penalty should not be an option ever. Gacy did awful, unimaginable things, but no one has the right to say he should die just like he had no right to take those boys' lives. It only makes us justified monsters. It brings no one back, and it actually makes it easier on the quote-unquote bad guy. Also, as I have said plenty of times, our system is too flawed for it to even be an option. One in ten people on death row are innocent or wrongly convicted. Now that's out of the way. As for Gacy... I don't want to talk about him anymore. It's nothing new. There were absolutely moments where intervention could have happened and maybe changed his behavior or whatever or his father's. Who knows? I just want to say something about the boys. So many innocent lives were taken. They all had hopes and dreams and deserved better. And a lot of them deserved better before Gacy even came along. Discovering who you are is scary enough. But to have no support from society or the people who are supposed to love you unconditionally is heartbreaking. We are still seeing a lot of that today, and I'm going to get upset. We are still seeing a lot of that today, and it's absolutely devastating. You have a right to be who you are, whatever that means to you. You also have the right to change that idea about yourself later on if you want to. Nothing in life is permanent, and that is both a blessing and a curse. If you are in a place where you are not safe to be who you are, please, please seek out help. I've included some organizations that I admire um, in the show notes as well. Um, You have people who will support you and love you, and sometimes you just have to get out there and find them. We here at Morning Murders love and support you. Yeah! Yeah. We do. We do. We advocate for you, and we are with you. We're your family now. Yeah, we're your family now. I just hope that more people start to open their eyes to see what is going on and help change things for the better. We are supposed to be supporting each other and accepting one another, not creating laws to hurt or suppress people and their lives. That's my final sip. Hmm. <laughs> Anybody else? My final sip is Amanda's final sip. No, that's not fair. <laughs> my final sip is my final sip that is Brenna's final sip. Believe uh, sex people, people that mm-hmm. have said that they've gotten raped. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Obviously. Listen to people. Yeah. There don't, it is. Mine, I mean, mine was mostly just, yeah, don't put yourself in a place where you can take advantage of people. Like, people who take advantage of people who are, like you said, just trying to find themselves, trying to be who they are, and you're taking advantage of that. You can go fuck off. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, just and if somebody like any the anyone can be raped. Yeah. Like anything can happen. People can coerce anybody. Like anybody can do that. For anyone to believe that like uh, men can't rape each other, that husbands can't rape wives, wives can't rape husbands, women can't no. rape men. You you're it's just a uh, You've lived a really cool life where you haven't had to deal with that, maybe. Right. So let's um, all start off with, this is possibly true, so let's look into it being true first. Yeah. And do all we can to help that person mm-hmm. instead of just assuming things aren't true. Right. right. Not believing people. Yeah. Well, thank you for being beans and continuing to share your coffee with us. We have some heavy conversations here at Morning Murders, and we're so grateful that you are here with us. We love you. We love you. We love you. We love you. We'll be back on Halloween with one more season two episode, and then we'll be on a break as we create season three. You can always reach out to us on Instagram at Morning Murders or email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Enjoy all the extra cups of coffee today and maybe go look at some pumpkins. We will be back next Monday with another episode on Morning Murders. Thank you for listening to Morning Murders. Remember to stop by every Monday for a new episode. And you can always check out our resources and mental health links in our show notes. If you enjoyed listening to our highly caffeinated conversation, please leave us a five-star rating and check us out on Instagram. At Morning Murders. That's at M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G-M-U-R-D-E-R-S. If you have any stories you'd like to hear discussed around the breakfast nook, email us at morningmurders at gmail.com. Thank Thank you for listening. Listening. Thwarted. Thwarted. But I did listen to the episodes that you guys put out, and they were very, very fun. I talked at the at my phone playing them as if you were in the room with me. We were. Um, we were. I sat in your chair. <gasps> cool. Right What'd you think? Put our butt on it. I did. I did do that. Butt cousins. But cousins. What? Uh, <laughs> what? <laughs> it was weird. We did it. We made it happen. We had fun, but we missed you. I Very missed much. you guys. <laughs> we didn't even do the warm up really because we like didn't know. You mean so... this one? Nicole, 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 Nicole. Nicole, Nicole, Nicole. Looky who's right here. Ben is right there. Ben is like, I want to be the Sections. Yeah, they've already <laughs> listened to the episode. Already here. <laughs> oh, are we ready? Yeah. Yeah. We've got our coffees, our mm-hmm. seven thousand drinks. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, it got to the point. Um, 
It got to the point where, to thought that this is not a sentence. It's weird. It got to the point to thought that the nope. <laughs> what am I trying to say? Oh, I understand. Yes, it got to the point where the uh, that Markle Markle wow that Markle Polo Markle Polo <laughs> the police learned John. You said it last time. How do you say that? Shits 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 sinks. Sizzik. Oh my god, like Zizik's Road? Yeah. Sizzik. Belong to. I'm really gonna take a drink of my coffee. Do it. It's ah. really happening. <laughs> don't turn this into an ASMR podcast, ASMR. okay? What's that? You do that, Brenny. No, really I don't close. like it. She gets up really close to the mic sometimes. <laughs> you do that sometimes. <laughs> okay. Uh. Another Sophia, Joe Megalia, nope, DiMaggio, Joe DiMaggio, I'm like, I know I know this name, but I can't read it, Mikey Mantel, Mantle, Mikey, Mickey Mantle, Mickey Mantle, god damn it, I can't read today, (laughs) I've said a lot of names, you have, Yogi Bera, Yogi Bera, Yogi Bera, Yogi Bear. <laughs> this makes me laugh. It's like Yogi Bear. Yeah. Was, I get it. Yeah. I get it. And it's Yogi. funny. I get it. Roy Campanella. Campanella. The morningest. The morningest of, of, of murder. The murdery. Murderiest. The murderiest of the murderiest. Gazoontite. Oh, there's a band. Gazoontite. <laughs> Ben's been there the whole time, emotional support doggo. The whole time. The whole time. The whole time. <laughs>